0: Welcome to The Bag Drop, Untold Stories in Golf. I'm your host and co-founder of New Club Golf Society, Matt Considine. To kick off our all-new season, we have a very special guest, one whose contributions spread across the golfing universe, Michael Kaiser Jr. Uh, Michael and I cover a lot of ground on this one, including the Lido Project, currently underway at Sand Valley, the funding of a new project at the Glenway Golf Course in Madison, Wisconsin, and Michael's development career. Uh, the path it took, and his lifelong passion for the outdoors, including uh, some of his conservation efforts at Sand Valley and elsewhere. Uh, this was a really enjoyable discussion to be a part of, and I think the perfect way to get excited for a whole new season of the backdrop drop and the golf season ahead. Speaking of looking ahead, our annual spring meeting at Sweetens Cove is just around the corner, and I'm very excited to announce that Golf Blueprint is the official partner of this year's spring meeting. Started by fellow members Kevin Moore and Nico Daris, Golf Blueprint creates data-informed golf improvement plans customized for your game. Every golfer is looking to improve, and the path to improvement is unique to each of us. Each golfer has different resources, goals, available time, personalities, and mindsets. Nico and Kevin draw on their analytics, education, performance, and psychology expertise to build data and research-driven improvement plans tailored to your game. If you're a member of New Club, you can sign up directly for one of the Golf Blueprint packages in the app. Uh, Exclusive to our membership, you will receive six Golf Blueprint practice plans delivered monthly at 25% discount compared to that standard price. If you're not a member of New Club, you got to check these guys out. Head over to golfblueprint.com. We had a handful of our members who took part in Golf Blueprints beta packages and, and onward into the winter, and you know the results are pretty impressive. Uh, everybody's re-upping. Um, it's, it's definitely seen gains in the golf game, but I think more impressive is how much fun these practice plans uh, make practice. It doesn't feel like practice. It's just an extension of the game. Really, really fun stuff. So check out Golf Blueprint. Uh, thanks for being official partner in the spring meeting. And without further ado, on to the show with Michael Kaiser Jr. Michael Kaiser Jr., welcome to The Backdrop. Thank you for having me here. It's good to have you. We're, we're talking on the day that we are releasing our summer medal registration for the Golf Society. So there's a lot of talk, uh, of sand Valley, everything going on there. Um, that's for our summer medal, which is months away, but I do want to talk a little bit about what's going on at sand Valley right now in the heart of winter. Uh, you guys kind of had a pretty good transformation this going into the off what typically is the off season. T- tell me a little bit about what's, what's happening there.
1: Sure. Well, we are building the Lido, which I, uh, wouldn't have, I wasn't planning to be doing in September. Our, our, hope was that we'd garner enough interest uh, to be able to purchase the land in December and start uh, clearing down trees uh, in the spring to rebuild uh, the Lido. The the support for the project was overwhelmingly positive and we were able to uh, move the purchase of the property up in time to September. Uh, It's a 900 acre parcel, part of a Uh, what we're calling the Lido Conservancy it's a restoration project uh, which the golf course sits uh, within so we moved the purchase up we started uh, clearing trees and started building the golf course uh, or at least doing the pre-construction removing trees then stumps and topsoil and then uh, got into uh, rough grading which again we hadn't planned on doing but we had a very mild uh, early winter And uh, the holes began to take uh, shape. The first hole we finished was was the channel hole, the famous uh, par five. And then we kept going. And um, last week we had about six greens roughed in the channel, the punch bowl, the Eden uh, 11, which is uh, double plateau and the Renan. Uh, And then we were hit with this uh, Arctic blast and things came screeching to a halt on Monday. So we're, we're doing some, uh, you know, tree, uh, some stump burning and things like that. But we're so much further ahead than we could have ever dreamed of. Uh, I, I may have jinxed us a week back when I, I said out loud, you know, we might be able to keep building, you know, all the way through the winter, uh, through the winter. And um, But what we're, we're, we're ahead of critical paths. So uh, we, we feel really lucky to have gotten this much done so early.
0: Yeah. Do, having the optimism to get through a Wisconsin winter, still building, building golf course the whole way. That'd be impressive.
1: Yeah. It was maybe unfound optimism, but you know, as a developer, you have to be perpetually optimistic.
0: So so we were with you guys in uh, so October for our founders cup. And I remember standing on the driving range uh, and we could hear dozers. And I remember saying at the time or somebody in the group uh, just assumed that it was Sedge Valley. We were hearing, mm-hmm. uh, but that was not the case.
1: That wasn't the case. That was uh, that was Lido. You're hearing uh, just so across was, the street from the resort.
0: What, walk walking through that decision to because um, uh, I believe it's it's postponed on Sedge Valley. I think that work. It's, it's that the right yeah. term for it is it's it's in the future. But uh, first, what what was the decision process to move Lido up?
1: Yeah. So there were two independent decisions. The first was uh, Sedge Valley. We had started pre-construction on it. I want to say last year but it's now 2018 and we're hoping to get started in the spring the last piece of our financing uh was a grant from the town of of rome that was uh, and then and then we hoped um successful operations from this year at sand valley when COVID happened none of us knew that golf would have this uh surge and you know we had to be conservative and and not knowing you know what what our future held we we had to pass on uh on the grant so we we got to the point and that expired uh of, at october 15th of this year so by being conservative and postponing it it actually pushed it down the line several years um so we we had begun to think about the Lido and how it might fit in and how we might, you know, what the model was. Uh, once we decided not to, uh, once we decided to postpone Sedge Valley, we started thinking very hard uh, about the Lido. Um, so Sedge Valley, po- you know, postpone, point stop. And then, you know, instead of sitting on our hands for two, three, four years, you know, let's make the, the, the most of this situation. There are different financing uh, models, the, uh, the Lido is being paid for by its members, uh, <clears throat> which is different than, you know, the resort uh, courses, which we build with, um, with our own money and investors and partners and grants and, um, you know, a, a group of uh, financiers. So yeah. that that's how the decision came to be. Uh-
0: I'll have some follow-up questions later on, uh, just about the structure of it and um, and how that works in with the rest of the the resort. But I want to talk about the history of the Lido, the original Lido. And um, you know, I'm I'm probably when it comes to golf architecture and in golf history, I think I'm a, you know, still a double-digit handicap, but I'm trending down. I'm like a ten when it comes to golf history and, and golf architecture, but. Uh, I didn't know that much about it, and I find it fascinating, as I'm sure you know you have for as long as you've been into it. But could could you tell our uh, our listeners a little bit more about the Lido and and why it, it was so special and what, what's what's warranted this this recreation?
1: Yeah, so the the Lido project was unprecedented precedented, uh, at the time. Uh, it, it was a massive civil engineering project when when the developer purchased the land. It was mostly underwater, it was sand, but it was marsh and, and tidal. And he, he, so he bought it very cheaply. His plan was to build a golf course and then sell a lot of homes uh, around it. This was very close to New York City on the uh, Western side of uh, Long Island. Um, so he had worked with McDonald uh, on a previous uh, private golf club. And uh, he, he laid down the gauntlet of, I will, you know, There is no budget. Uh, You could spend whatever you like and you could build your dream golf course. In a sense, he had already started doing that by taking his favorite and what he thought to be the best holes from the United Kingdom, you know, and using them in his routings. But this was a step further in that you didn't have to lay those templates on top of existing topography. You know, his hands weren't constrained by God, right? It was do whatever you can imagine. So at first he was very much opposed to the idea, but as he thought about it, he realized that this could be you know, his dream um, golf course. So with the, the brilliant civil engineer, Seth Rayner, uh, he agreed to uh, do the project. Um, so the, you know, the the routing is comprised of many of the holes that you'd expect to see on a McDonald uh, routing or, or Rayner routing. Uh, additionally, there were, Three holes that were uh, part of a design contest that were incorporated uh, into the routing we should come back to those uh, specifically. Um, there was this new, uh, channel hole which which was inspired by a, a hole overseas but was uh, what went beyond you know what what it was uh, originally so uh, in that sense it was similar to um, to some of his other uh, golf courses, it was a very intimate site. Uh, it was small, um, but that that constraint created some neat opportunities uh, with you know shared fairways. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of holes that f- feel very much in place uh, at at St Andrews. Um, you could you could feel the spirit of St Andrews when you look at this routing, with with some obvious exceptions. Basically, the desi- the competition holes and the channel. But when you start looking at you know, t- two and, and, and eleven and and seventeen, that you know that many of them feel very much at home. Uh the scale of the golf course, again, very similar to what you might see at, at St. Andrews, where you have these one to six foot micro contours that are hugely impactful in in, in steering balls toward you know small, small bunkers. You know, at St. Andrews, they're small bunkers, but the collection area that funnels into them are often enormous. Um, One of his goals he'd seen in American golf courses that the, the golfer was often presented with a flat lie. And that's not what his experience was overseas. So he was very deliberate because he had the opportunity to manufacture the contours, to give the golfer waves that ran perpendicular to the hole, waves that were parallel to the whole waves that ran on a diagonal, and almost nowhere will you find a, an even line. Um, so that that at the time was very rare, and it, it's still uh, not the norm uh, today. It was a highly strategic, you know, golf course. It was very wide, you know, compared to anything that had been built at the time. It had these enormous greens. So you know, immediately you think of St Andrews, tremendous width these huge greens, but bunkers and land contours, uh, that, that make it, you know, very strategic in that, you know, a 70 yard yard wide fairway, but there might just be one small section that gives you an angle into the day's pin, right. With large greens, there's so many different places to put the pin. So you might want to be in this spot on Monday and this spot on, on Thursday. Um, so those are some of the highlights or general descriptions of, of the golf course. You know, one last point to note is it was, it was built on sand, manufactured with sand. You know, here you, you have tawny turf, big water. We could talk about a lagoon that was a, a in play and a major feature, 25 acres on six of the holes. But then this warm sand dunes. And we have found here at Sand Valley that when you're a, among these dunes, you just—it's very comforting, right? And and then you look look to a place like Tara Edie, just beautiful. Maybe maybe the most beautiful current course on the planet. Sand dunes are are warm and, and pretty, and uh, there there wouldn't have been any with the scale of this this amount of exposed sand. Uh, so it's very much in place, even though it's far from Long Island. It's very much in place here uh, at Sand Valley. So those are some of the high level. Mm-hmm uh features of, of the routing.
0: I, I read somewhere in in one of the releases that uh McDonald was pulling two million cubic yards of sand in the original Lido. Do you think Tom has surpassed that before winter hit yet? Or
1: no he hasn't and he won't. So um one thing that's important uh one thing that Peter Flory, who we could get to, pointed out to me is that, you know, when he did the calculation, he's looking at 2 million yards and you look at these features, which are pretty subtle. When you think 2 million yards, you think of, you know, these huge, you know, I, um, I don't know what hidden Creek, you know, is, but it, something didn't match. And what he realized was a, a huge amount of that was in getting the site out of, out of water above water, right. That whatever it was, one point X, million cubic yards was moving this up so if you had a flat perfectly flat site you know parking lot made of sand uh we should do the calculation I don't know it but it would be I don't know 100,000 200,000 max cubic yards which isn't small but um we had a site that was much flatter than sand valley but it had five to 15 foot contours so take it take a piece of um construction paper and crumple it up, you know, and then flatten it out. Those are sort of the features on our site. Very similar to the features of the Lido, but in different places, right? They don't line up. This might be six feet up and this hole is four feet down. That's 10 feet of cut and and fill. So we have to make this piece of paper, you know, equal to this piece of paper. So uh, in doing that, for us, it's a, a lot of uh, earth moving. We'll, we'll probably move 700, I think the calculation is 750,000 cubic yards um, of sand in order to rebuild the golf course. If it was a perfectly flat site, let's say it was 100 to, I'll, I should find out. It'd be a fun That'd be interesting uh, fact to know, but it would be much less.
0: You you raised the name Peter Flory, who's a gentleman I know well from the uh, Chicago district. He's a talented golfer himself in his own right as they say um but talk about his involvement because what i find so fascinating about this and and i look around the golf world and i'm constantly seeing uh almost conflicting where technology and tradition are at each other you know they're battling it out to see who who will will win but in this case it it was so interesting to me how technology has brought the tradition is making the tradition possible so tell us about peter
1: yeah. So, as you as you pointed out, he's a uh, he's a very skilled uh, golfer um, with modern technology. But he also has a passion for hickory uh, clubs, as you know, and is I, I believe a plus handicap. He has two handicaps: modern technology and hickory. And I think he's still a plus handicapper, scratch with hickory. He played in an event here uh, at Les, nearby at Lassonia from the tips this last fall and you know, left, missed a couple short putts uh, and shot seven under, under par, you know, from the tips. Of, so he's that sort of player. He's a really good player. Um, he's a passionate, uh, you know, historian of the game and and is passionate about, you know, architecture. Uh, so what, I, I, I know he, he found a little more time on his hands. I don't, I don't remember, um, you know, he was still working, Working full time, but I, I think you know less of a grind as I understand it. And he became obsessed with with the Lido, and he started uh, piecing together all the information that existed on the original, you know, the historical course, and began trying to piece it back together in this three D gaming model. Um, and what he did that was so interesting to me is he he uploaded that all into the public domain on golf club atlas and people started coming out of the woodworks, you know, who, who who were inspired by him and said, you know, I have this piece of information that I've been sitting on, you know, didn't necessarily want to publish it, but I want you to use it to help make your model more accurate. So he became this dumping ground and accumulated, you know, more um, information about, uh, the Lido. That then e- even past historians have come close to. You know, George Bottle carried the torch of the Lido, you know, for for you know his lifetime, and uh, and was just a, a, an incredible historian and and, and writer and um, inspirational Lido on the uh, or leader on the Lido, you know. And, and Peter by using not just the gaming technology, but I think the idea of uploading, you know. To the public is another piece of technology that's overlooked sometimes when telling a story. Um, it also, I, I, it, it also points to his incredible generosity and passion and motives, right? Which again are sometimes overlooked. He didn't see it as proprietary. This is mine. I'm hoarding it, as some people do. He just wanted this. He just wanted to see this thing, and I don't think he ever thought it'd be built, but wanted. I think be able to play it, you know, accurately. Uh, on, on this game, so I was introduced to him. I'd seen some of his, you know, renderings on Golf club Atlas. Um, d- didn't know anything about him, and I was talking to a mutual friend to tell him that Chris and I were going to move forward with this project. And he reminded me of those renderings. Said, "I know Peter. Let me introduce you." So I reached out to Peter very meekly. The, the intent was to convince him to share one of his images. So that I could use it to market the project, you know, because you describe it to people, and some people get it, some people's you know eyes roll. But if you if you see it, you know, it's hard not to get excited. So you know, without blinking, you know, he said, "Of course, I'll, I'll give you anything. I'll give you anything you want." You know, this isn't mine. This is histories and McDonald's, and um, was overwhelmingly generous uh, in sharing those images. Uh, which, which helped us tremendously in, you know, raising excitement for the project. And one thing I didn't know at the time is I, I think his, um, you know, the body of data that he collected was a huge part of being able to convince Tom Doak to do the project. So had I, I, when, I, when we started the project, we hadn't hired Tom yet. And looking back on it without Peter, I don't know if Tom, because he'd been a skeptic, Tom had been a skeptic of this project for a long time. He just didn't think there was enough information to do it accurately and to do it right. And he didn't see the point in in, in doing if it. If it wasn't a, a restoration similar to other Raynor McDonald courses that he consults on. So Peter's been a huge part of this in so many ways. He's been amazingly generous and um, I'm grateful for that. And I'm excited for him to, uh, be able to play it with his uh hickories.
0: I, th- I think that that's interesting on Tom, and, and I listened to Tom on um, a friend, Andy Johnson's pod, talk about you know, a little bit of of that skepticism on on you know being able to recreate it. Um, and I and I I wonder, you know, would most developers have just chalked it up to uh, inspired by you know the Lido instead of you know you guys. I'll hand it to you very bold to say, you know, no, no, no. We are recreating a masterpiece. Tell me about that. Was there discussion to say, you know, maybe we go the old McDonald route and just say it's, it's uh, a a tribute. It's an inspiration. What was there? Were you insistent on saying, no, we're going to fully recreate.
1: Yeah. To me, it was only ever, uh, a full recreation of, of what existed. We have so much great land here at Sand Valley. If we're going to do something inspired by it, um, you know, then we then it would have been a public course. It would have been on better piece of ground. And Tom had already done that. He, he, he doesn't get excited about, he, he likes doing things new and innovative and for the first time, I don't think we, we would have got a, him on board to do it. Um, So no, that just doesn't, I mean, people who build courses inspired by McDonald or by Lido, I think it's awesome. It's nothing but great for the game game of golf, but it wouldn't be our first move. Um, And had the course not been so exceptional, I'd have no interest in doing it either. But because it was so wonderful, it it seemed like it, it was appropriate to bring it back. Um, because it was so very good and, and has so much to teach us, not just about the history, but hopefully shape, you know, the, the future as, as all great courses from the past do.
0: And there's gotta be some comfort too, right. In in recreating something that doesn't exist today. You know, it's not like it's the old course and people are going to fly over and play the old course and say, well, this was different.
1: Well, <laughs> uh, it's comfort. It's actually more pressure than I've ever felt. Cause if we go out, you know, if, um, You know, if if Tom Doak builds an eight, you know, on the Doak scale at Sedge Valley, we will uh, be considered very successful. Lots of people will come here. They'll love it and we'll get, you know, we'll receive praise. This is it's it's in the historical record of how good it was and how it was compared to its peers. So anything shy of that is a failure. So it's a it's a tremendous pressure, and and we put pressure on ourselves in everything we do. We want to do it to the best of our abilities, but it's we could, you know, we could only screw it up. So, it it is, but it's <laughs> Got certainly, certainly keeping us you know up at night, making sure we're sweating every single detail, you know, looking under every rock, you know triangulating, you know, talking about it, you know, with each other, challenging each other. Um, you know, it's it's, it's going to be a, a tremendous amount of, of effort from a lot of people to do it right.
0: Well, it's, it's caption captured the minds and imaginations of a lot of ardent golfers. I know that, and you know, that we love to obsess about the details and it sounds like that's exactly what you guys. <laughs> yeah. And Peter
1: And Peter and Tom have, have the right personality for that. You know, I mean, they're both going to, know Peter is certainly obsessed he spent two thousand dollars two thousand hours obsessing over the details and you know architect Tom Doak and Tom Doak you know has made a career about making the details you know perfect he he and Renaissance Golf and his and his team and just to go back to your last question for a second the, the reason Chris and I hired Tom was when I called him to ask him just about his interest in the project, he made it clear that he would only do it, uh, if it if it was a Charles Blair McDonald golf course that he's consulting on to rebuild. He didn't want to build a Tom Doak, you know, and that r- resonated with us, because that's, you know, people who had talked about rebuilding it in the past had talked about, I'll, I'll give you a couple examples, you know, can you improve holes and can you change holes? So um, there are holes, the Alps hole, for example, is a fabulous hole here. The Alps at National is better. So do you try to say, this is a very good Alps, it's not the best in the world, let's try to make it the best in the world. Uh, and, you know, and there's two or three examples of that where you, when you compare it to the other best template. Um, in my mind, as soon as you alter it, it's not the leader and then we completely lose our credibility. And then people start doubting, you know, how good is it? Uh, the other temptation uh, would be there were holes that McDonald had wanted to build uh, at the end of, at the end of the project, they ran out of uh, money and weren't able to build them per his, his dream. So The 11th green is this enormous, stunning green, right? It, as, as built, it was just fabulous. It, it, and it's, it's big. He wanted it to be something like 20,000 square feet. Right, so it's tempting to say let's fulfill his dream, and you know follow through with some of some of what wasn't able to be built. But again, we lose our credibility. It's not the Lido anymore, and the whole thing unravels. So um, that I, I I've been a part of the Lido conversation for. 20 years out of proximity to my my dad and and hearing him talk about it the meetings we had with various architects and historians on it Um, and in hearing you know the other people talk about it I I think I think there's just a little too much talk about tweaking it improving it you know and and I've always felt this is this just has to be a strict restoration my brother agreed and, and Tom Doak certainly does
0: Last question on the Lido before we move on to other, other topics. Um, this is the first private club since the dunes club for, for the family and, and your development group. Uh, tell us a little bit about that structure. Um, you already alluded to financing, uh, which sounds like a big part of it, but what, what was, uh, what were your thoughts that led to, to that decision that this will be, um, this will be private?
1: Well, first off it, you know, it's in line with everything that we do, uh, it comes from looking back at the games traditions in the UK and then trying to move that forward. Right. I mean, we're not inventing new paradigms in in golf or maybe synthesizing them in unique ways and bundling them together in ways that the the American golfer hasn't seen, you know, yet, but all of our inspiration comes from, you know, the games past in this country, but even more so overseas. So, you know, what, what I saw when I lived in Australia was these, you know, very elite clubs, small clubs, private clubs welcomed uh, the golfing public at certain times uh, because they were proud, you know, of of their golf course and they wanted to share it. Right, I'm proud of this. I want to share it. They became ambassadors. You know, they were they felt as though they were custodians of this wonderful asset that would continue on beyond their their lifetime. So when I, you know, worked at at Barnbool Dunes, I was able to play Kingston Heath and play Royal Melbourne. Right. And, um, if, if we were to travel to Scotland or, or Ireland, you know, we could, it's not cheap, but you could play Royal County down, you know? So, um, that's again, an interesting, as, as many of golf's models are breaking down in this country. One of the things we've seen is the private golf course model, um, is, um, in in some markets and some instances it's breaking down and we thought it would be appropriate to introduce perhaps a new uh, model to the American golfer where you could have a a small private club, uh, but at the same time be welcoming uh, to outsiders to see it and to get excited about sharing it. So our, our membership is comprised of people, you know, who are passionate about the history of the game, architecture, and then are excited to share it. Right. And they don't want to hoard that. Uh, they want to share it, you know, and, and educate it. You know, it's, I've sat in, you know, the, the bar of a clubhouse at some of these clubs and the members, you know, they, they just love telling you about, you know, the club's history and the architecture. And that's something that, that they really enjoy. And, um, in some cases, you know, they'll, they'll caddy in the morning, caddy for you in the morning, and go play, um, off in the afternoon and I you know in many instances they don't need the money they just love the camaraderie meeting people from you know around the world and sharing their their story so that's always been inspiring you know to to us but you know to, to me and, and Chris and and we thought this might be a good opportunity to introduce that idea it's certainly not a shift in where we're going you know this is a one-off but um we think it's worthy uh and we're excited about it.
0: That, uh, that's exciting to hear because I think you know for those of us that have traveled overseas and have felt what you're talking about, uh, it, it does uh, open eyes maybe perhaps to a little bit different than what we might have grown up with uh, on this side of the pond. And a mutual friend of ours, Craig Haltham actually. He, he's the one that I always say um, since we've launched New club, he gave me the best bit of advice that I've ever got. And he said, you know, when you're trying to make these decisions, go back to the inspiration. You know, yeah. Go back to the roots of the game. They, yeah. they lasted for thousands of years. Yeah. <laughs> go 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 back to that. And it, it's neat to hear you guys um, do that as well.
1: Yeah, he's right. I mean, it's all like the blueprint exists, right? Um, so I, I couldn't agree more.
0: Yeah. Uh, you also have been, uh, you've been all over the world. You, you mentioned Von Bruegel Dunes, which I'll ask you a little bit about. Um, but you've stated, you know, you prefer accessible, affordable golf courses, which uh, you, you've mentioned some of the, that are the private ones that um, allow for guest play. What What are some of the others that stand out in your mind, just that are accessible and, and perhaps even affordable um, that you've sure. been to and en- enjoy?
1: I love this conversation. I, I know, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to miss probably some very obvious ones. So pardon, you know, pardon me, uh, for that. I mean, St. Andrews is the greatest example of that. It's certainly accessible. Um, it, you know, if you're willing to, to wait in line, it's affordable. If you live there, it's very affordable. Uh, it's a municipal golf course. Um, but given how good it is, the value, even what they charge you and I, if we want to go tee off at 8, 830, um, it's, it's, you know, worth every uh, penny, you know, Pebble Beach is, is fabulous. Again, it's, it's expensive, but it's accessible. Pinehurst uh, is, is number two is, you know, one of my favorite golf courses. Uh, it's, it's outstanding. Um, at a more affordable, level wild horse which is a dan proctor dave axon's uh, golf course it, it's a fabulous golf course and it's i think 35 mm-hmm. 35 bucks with a cart i didn't take a cart but still 35 dollars you know some of the best um value in golf um so those would i mean obviously the like, some of the ones i named are some of the greatest golf courses on the planet and they're accessible um, and Wild Horse, I just think, is such a, a cool uh, model uh, that other communities can follow. They, they built it um, very cheaply uh, through volunteers, local farmers who volunteered on their, uh, either their equipment or their labor and equipment. Uh, they sold some memberships, you know, local $2,500 memberships, I think it was. And then on the perimeter of the golf course, in ways that are, to me, not offensive to golf, they sold you know some affordable home sites. So it's just such a neat, uh, a neat model. Um, I haven't been to Winter Park. I think that is is so neat though. Just from you know conceptually and my understanding of the architecture, it's accessible. It's also affordable. Goat Hill Park, what John Ashworth has done there, you know, it's just in, in, incredible how it, you know, the in, environmental components, but also the community, how, how it's, it's become so much more than the golf course there. It's where the community comes together. Um, and that's really neat and inspiring to me. Uh, Craig Altam and I are trying to work on a project in the city of Madison that uh, maybe in some ways is a hybrid of, you know, Winter Park and Goat Hill Park. Um, where uh, Craig is designing with Pri- uh, Brian Schneider uh, and Sarah Mass a renovation of a, a nine-hole golf course called Glenway, part thirty-two, f- uh, four par threes, two short par fours, two long par fours, uh, and we want to renovate it so that it's you know more interesting architecturally, more inclusive, you know, to a range of abilities uh, and swing speeds, uh, and then brings the community. Together by community, we include non-golfers. Uh, we want this to be a place, if you don't play golf, you're still going to uh, come and gather together and enjoy this beautiful landscape, you know, use the hiking trails. Um, we're going to do some, we hope, if the project's approved habitat restoration, natural areas. Um, we introduced the concept of, you know, St. Andrew's is closed every Sunday. They charge us 400 pounds around and yet they close it so families can walk, take their dogs, picnic, fly kites, and enjoy the common ground. Uh, And that's something that's resonated with with the city that they might do on Sunday afternoons. So um, again, there's there's lots of great accessible golf courses, but those are a few very different models of uh, quality, accessibility, and affordability that I think are worth uh, noting, certainly.
0: Very neat to hear about that project in Madison because I, I was going to ask you that question. You know, you've you've been to all these places around the world with tremendous grounds for golf, and and I was I was interested if if the municipal or the kind of suburban you know normal country club golf that we're all more accustomed to would still appealed to you or, or still was kind of on on your radar.
1: Yeah, it's very appealing. Um, it's very appealing to to me and my brother Chris and we want to give it more attention in in the future will probably be through helping to finance projects and then partner with people who could execute. Um, Glenway is one that my wife and I have offered to finance and we'll be involved in the execution. But um, you know my passion is still trying to to build you know the the greatest uh, golf course uh, we can, and we have some really neat projects in the pipeline. So that's going to be my focus, but we, we would like to get more involved in, you know, providing the type of course that more people can play on a more regular basis. You know, these dream golf courses are amazing places to go and be inspired for your annual, you know, trip. Um, but we also recognize that golf probably needs more places like winter park and goat Hill on Glenway where you could play twice a week, play fast, play with your grandmother, you know, or your children, um, get around. Um, golf needs more of, of those. So we want to be a part of the conversation on how that happens. And, and there's other people uh, doing that. You know, we talked about three of them, uh, you know, Will, Will Smith and his group in Washington, D.C. are doing amazing work you know, there. So we, 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 we want to be part of that conversation. And now that we've experienced some taste of success here at San Valley, you know, use our, our platform and those resources to help move the municipal game forward.
0: That, that is very cool to hear. Very exciting. And it directly aligns with that throwback to um, the origins of the game and, and a lot of the, the links culture, they, they have those courses, you know, and, and they're pretty close or next door or in the villages next to those, Dream golf destinations.
1: Yeah. It's, and, the, you know, for anybody who's traveled abroad to, you know, it's worth playing the very best over there. Cause they're so good. But if you have the time, it's extremely fun to play some of these more, more local, uh, courses that fly under the radar and they might not, you know, they're not as good across 18 holes, but often they have five or six or seven incredible holes. And then they're just fun. Um, uh, and they're far more affordable and you get to meet some really interesting people, you know, when, when you play, you know, when you play on them. So
0: on the uh, destination side. um, So I want to get to your, your development career and and how that has um, kind of the path you've taken. But uh, before that, I've read elsewhere that you fell in love with golf at Royal doorknock when you were 15. Yeah. Um, And so in those teen years, you know, um, we're, we're making a pilgrimage there in 2022. So that's, I, that kind of stood out to me of, uh, oh, wow. Okay. I love, I love going places where people had that much of a connection to, um, what makes doorknock different for you, uh, compared to all the other great courses?
1: Well, um, several things first, first is, you know, Royal doorknock, you know, when, when people argue, some people think it's, it's, The greatest golf course on the planet it's hard to argue with that it's it's certainly among the very best but when i was 15 and a lousy golfer i'm I'm still on the spectrum of lousy but you know i've improved slightly they have the sturry course you know so that was different for me because it was a a course that i could play it seemed like it was designed for me it's similar to what we're looking at at glenway right where the the largest cohort of golfers uh, at glenway is senior women you know, and it's a course that, that fits them. And there's a lot more of that over there where there's places, there, there, there's courses for people of lower swing speeds. So as much as I was inspired playing 36 with my dad uh, every day, you know, at Royal Dornick and, and learning from him what made it, you know, so good. It was the 36 or 54 holes I played on the street course in the afternoon which is where I really got hooked. You know, I could make a par on that, you know, I'm not going to par Foxy, uh, you know, when I'm 15 and, but make some pars and and that's fun. You know, I was turned off from golf because of the dunes club in in Michigan, which is the private nine hole course my dad built. It's a fabulous golf course, but it's a terrible place to introduce somebody to the game. Right. I mean, it is really hard. And when it opened, it had eight, eight inch rough. It was us open. I mean, if, if you, not a good place to, to get excited about the game. You know, that's why I became a rock and ice climber and a windsurfer. Cause I, I wanted no part. So actually the irony was we spent a year living in, in Switzerland when I was 15. So the trip was made from Switzerland. I was a big mountaineer, rock and ice climber. So went, went to Switzerland, a rock and ice climber and came back a golfer after the trip to, to, uh, to Scotland instead of, instead of going, you know, climbing and being in the mountains, every second I could, we'd go play these lousy Swiss golf courses, you know, several times a week and I I had the the bug. Um, So, but there's also the spirit of it, you know, and not to get into the metaphysical, but on that trip I had, what I would describe as a a transcendental experience where I just went out, It may have been 10 o'clock at at night, you know, in the summer, you know, near the solstice, and I remember just hitting with a nine iron and and just started, you know, peering these shots and that boundary between the ball, the ground and myself, you know, began to dissolve, you know, and then after a couple of holes, I'm sure I shanked one and, it, you know, it shattered, but I, I had that little, you know, glimpse into, you know, uh, you know, that that side of the game, which I think we all, chase whether or not it's it's spiritual or you know maybe you call it the zone but it's 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 something that's you know very unique about golf and for me it's spiritual and, and uh you know i began to learn something about myself by playing the game and i thought that was pretty pretty neat
0: there, there's a lot of people listening that are not in their heads right now i think you know that we've we've all once you really get the hook you, you've experienced a, at least a portion of that of yeah. that whole, that whole, um, spiritual, whatever you want to call it. Uh, that's us stay abroad. So I, uh, I picked up a Lynx magazine the, the other day and I noticed your dad mentioned that you have an interest in developing golf in, in Denmark. Uh, that's the first time I heard of it. G- any insight there?
1: Yeah, I have an interest. I, you know, the, I, uh, there's also, you know, limited amount of time in a day, right? <laughs> Unfortunately we're constrained to 24 hours. So, the entire west coast uh, of Denmark, maybe maybe the northern half, is just unbelievably beautiful sand dunes. Um, and I think when a lot of people think of Denmark, they think of you know Finland and, and Norway and Sweden and you know picture it up in the Arctic. Denmark is below the south of those, adjacent to Germany. You know the Europe the the main you know, European body uh, of ground, and it it is pretty uh, similar longitudinally to Scotland. Right, northern Denmark is near northern Scotland, and then southern Denmark near southern Scotland. Uh, the temperature is a little uh, cooler. Uh, there are extraordinary dunes there um, on the coast. They're they're very much protected as part of the EU. But once you back off of that buffer there are amazing dunes that are still high enough that you could look out over over the water you know often the dunes are the front range and then it flattens out you know down below that's the case often you know across scotland but in denmark you have the front range and then the dunes climb in some cases so uh, it's a neat idea and um, you know I've, I've been uh chatting uh with my friend Edmund Rowe, from, who's a golf architect and sort of thought leader in Iceland and in the EU, and he's helped me uh, think through the possibility. Uh, if we ever did anything, it, it would really it would be with him. Uh, but you know, it's one of these far out ideas that you know maybe maybe if we're lucky, we get to one day. But you know, for now, we're going to stay focused on closer to home. But somebody should do it. Yeah, you know the probably the. The government, you know, should do it. It's great for uh, for tourism and the hospitality business. employs a lot of people. You know, these sites are a three and a half hour drive from Hamburg, Germany. Um, Certainly, you know, if if you could string a couple of them uh, together, then you know it'd be worth visiting while you're uh, you know going to, to to Scotland. But I think he was having a little fun with that because I sent him some sites, but stranger things have happened.
0: <laughs> hey, I, I've sent uh, your brother uh, pictures while I've, I've been on uh, random vacations in in Michigan. So I, I know the dream. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, aren't there amazing sites?
0: The uh, last, a broad question for you. Um, is there anything to the rumors that cool links in Scotland uh, could, you know, that's just north of Dornoch, um, that that could still be a possibility?
1: Uh, we hope so it's not something we're involved in anymore. Um, our, uh, our proposal um, our proposal didn't pass but now a very local you know the project had overwhelming local uh, support and uh, they've continued on and formed a new group and changed some of their strategies and we're excited for them and, and we're rooting them on We're not involved. You know anymore but it's an incredible coalition of of people who are passionate about the project who we certainly hope uh, succeed great
0: um, so we'll circle back to, to San Valley because you know we, we got to talk about that with uh, our visits it, it being the closest dream golf destination for the majority of our cohorts um, I want to talk about your development path uh, you know I I, I was Reading certain things, and I saw that you had lived at Bandon um, when you were working to develop the property there. You have lived uh, at Sand Valley since basically day one through the, the original construction. And uh, I'm curious, is that important? Why do you think it's important to live um, at these development sites?
1: Um, yeah, you know, Bandon, I, I wasn't a direct part of of the development, I worked in the operations. and. I, I'd grown up at, at spending summers in Bandit. You know, it took eight or nine years to, to get approval and then a couple of years to build. So we started visiting the, the property, maybe the late 80s. I was born in 81. So, you know, I, I grew up running around in those dunes, often in the woods where, you know, trails is, but, you know, in the dunes around. The, the, the preserve so I you know I loved it and I was proud of my dad and excited about what he was doing and wanted to be a part of it um, so I moved there and worked uh, the summer at open worked uh, on the agronomy team uh, there's a split shift then so agronomy team in the morning then I work outdoor services then I work agronomy in the afternoon Then I close outdoor services and I go drink a ton of beer and I was 18 and then I'd do it all over again. So it was really fun. Um, but one of the things I noticed uh, was that, you know, the caddies made a lot more, a lot more money. So when I came back, I don't know if it was the following summer or I, I was a, a carpenter uh, for several years in high school and college. Um, but then later in college, I came back and went and caddied. And I didn't know this at the time, but one of the reasons it was so valuable is I got to know our customers intimately, right? And just hear what they like, what they don't like every single day. Uh, and not just about the golf course and the golf experience, but every facet of, of the business. So wasn't deliberate at the time, but by being there, uh, I learned uh, a tremendous amount. Uh, same thing with uh, Bar & Boogle, when, when we opened that, uh, the operations team consisted of, you know, the guy who had the vision for the property, who was, you know, a, a partner, not not the, the Sattler family controls, it's the, the business, it's their development, but Greg Ramsey and I were in a single wide trailer, you know, just hustling. Um, so again, I, I personally met every single customer, you know, I didn't take an afternoon off for six months. So um, we learned a lot. Uh, I also learned that I didn't love the operations management side of the business, and um, wanted to be as involved as possible in, in the development and understanding Richard Sattler's you know, vision and how he went about putting the whole business together. So he he and his wife Sally were incredible mentors to me, um, and their children were like siblings, you know, to me, and. Uh, so then when I moved back to Chicago, after my time in Australia, I, I wanted to learn some of the skill sets to develop. And there were no projects that would be appropriate for me to develop at the time. I didn't have any experience. Um, so I joined a small, very entrepreneurial uh, company in, in Chicago and, and uh, learned how to develop you know, retail and medical office buildings and schools and um, same skill set you know, that, that I apply today, but just a different, a different product. Was
0: was it important for you to get those experiences? um, Not with your father's company at the time?
1: Yeah, that was his, I mean, that was his sort of advice and direction. You know, he said, if if I hire you right now, you're always going to question if, you know, did you earn it? Are you worthy? Are you capable? You know, go find some success on your own, then you'll have confidence. So, and if there's a, a project, you know, at the right time, th- then, you know, that'll be a better way to go about doing it. So he, that was you know, great advice and, you know, and it worked out, you know, worked out well. Your,
0: your dad for me is, is more of a, a Chivas irons type of character because I, I read dream golf in 2013 or yeah, 2013, when my first visit to Bandon. and, uh, and yeah, I just, he just, um, s- spoke so much of the game that I was just starting to unravel and uncover, you know, and, yeah. and, uh, it's always been cool to run into him at different, you know, I've seen him at the Dunes Club a few times and he just uh, has done so much for the game as you now are are carrying that torch. My, my question for you, um, what's it like working with your dad and how does your approach differ than his?
1: Um, Well, it's, it's great working with him. We're both sort of, you know, strong personalities and, you know, want to, want to lead things. So, the relationship, you know, early on was very much, you know, working with him in the first couple of years, but you know, I, I needed my space to sort of to build the business, and, and you know, and, and and he was wonderful to give me that space and just, to sort of back off and uh, and let me, you know, just, just go. Um, he's always been, and, and and then shifted into more of a mentor role. So after those first, you know, first year or two, it was, you know, call call me if, if, you know, if you have a question, but it wasn't us working together the way Christopher and I, who's, who's my brother, you know, worked, worked together to build the business. So uh, it was nice, but we we both want to drive things and, you know, build our vision. And those visions to the second part of your question are very much in line. Everything I've learned, not everything, but been hugely molded by and inspired by him. So it's not that they're all that different. It's that we just have the personalities that, you know, we want to, you know, drive things forward. So where we're at now is more of a divide and conquer, right? Where it's, you know, Chris and I are, have built this business and are driving San Valley forward. He's an incredible mentor who always picks up the phone. The only time he doesn't pick up the phone is 1120 to 130 when he's working out and having lunch, Right. Otherwise he picks up or if he's on a call, he calls right back, you know, and sometimes it's a couple of times a week. Sometimes we don't talk business for several months. Um, he's, he's a mentor. Um, and then on the projects that he's building, cool links, Vandenberg in California were, let's say consultants, you know, we're on those trips, but I'm giving him sort of 5% of my time. And it's very clear that Vandenberg is his project, you know, and, and I'm there to you know to help and offer a different perspective, but you know he's building that up just as you know we're building this. We now have some new destinations that you know sites we found, businesses we're putting together. So he's been amazing to let us have that. He didn't you know hold on you know tightly. San Valley wouldn't exist if it weren't for him. So he could have clung to clung to that, but he sort of let us let us go and, and do it, and and that's been you know, really incredible.
0: There was a, uh, golf digest article, I think last year, maybe, uh, titled why the Kaiser method works. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, it talked a little bit, a lot more about yourself and Chris and, and the approach you guys have taken. Um, I I'm, I'm curious, it's a great article. I recommend anybody who's interested in this stuff to, to pick it up and read it. But, uh, could you describe the Kaiser method in five words?
1: No, I certainly know. I'm not that my dad is great at pulling things down. He's very succinct. I like to ramble, but I'll do my best to describe the the, the Kaiser method. And I don't know if this is what was described in that article, but I've been thinking about it recently. And, um, uh, let me start. I'll try to, I'll try to start with five words, but then let me elaborate. Fair. Uh, <laughs> the first is, uh, collaborative collaboration. Um, Connector. Um, let, let me let me start with those, um, and then see if that leads to to three others. But um, he's an extraordinary uh, collaborator in the sense that, he, you know, what 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 I spend most of my day doing, which I've learned from him, is asking people a lot of questions. I mean, I basically just ask questions all day. And then you synthesize that or either consciously or subconsciously, and then you come up with the step forward. So, um, and that's just what I've, I didn't realize that until more recently, but you know, my entire childhood, I've just watched him ask everybody around him a million questions. You know, if you went into a McDonald's, he started asking people questions, you know, Taxi, heat ride, asking people questions. He's asking us questions. So um, curiosity, you know, he has a profound curiosity of how things work. Um, and that leads to a very collaborative um, management style where, you know, I, I'm, I probably have, you know, 20, 25 people who offer different perspectives on different things. And I spend a lot of time saying, hey, what do you think about this? Hey, what do you think about that? Um, And then, you know, weeding out responses that aren't, you know, appropriate and then, uh, and then moving forward. So collaborative, um, the connectivity is, you know, he's a voracious reader and he just connects people and ideas together. Um, Yeah, I was talking to somebody recently and and made the comparison. um, And I think I could do this as a proud son, but to Steve Jobs. In that you know, Steve doesn't. As far as I understand, Steve didn't. Maybe Wozniak did, but he didn't. You know, necessarily invent any new technology that doesn't exist. And Apple doesn't invent a lot of it today. But he synthesizes it in ways that have never been seen before and presented to customers, right? And I think that's that's something my dad's very good at, and we're we're trying to do. It's again, our blueprints in the in the past. And on top of that, we layer in, you know, hospitality and friendly pricing and strategies. But it's really just how we synthesize these these things and package them in a way that our our guests um, really enjoy. So that's you know, synthesizing curiosity, collaborative connector. Um, you know, I, I think we're starting to zero in on uh, you know, inquisitive. You just just questions. That's all we're doing it. You know, the, um, the way that translates into what I do is I measure 50 times and cut once, right? That if we were to, I was talking to another developer, you know, I was trying to raise a big chunk of money and, you know, Sand Valley, we built, um, my dad brought in founders early on, but then Chris and I've had to figure out how to pay for all of this. Had he handed us the money to build it, we certainly would have failed, right? Um, what's great is, you know, starting small, listening listening to your customers, growing you know, growing in this direction, listening to your customers, going in that direction. And then when we plan something, I start off with an idea uh, and then I kick it around and call people and then it shifts this way and we redraw it and then we kick it around and redraw it. So, so any one plan, let's say it's the new, a new food and beverage, you know, outlet. We're going to build a brewery with fast, casual barbecue di- uh, dining. It went through 50 iterations and so many of our competitors just take a big chunk of money, plan the whole thing on day one. And that's sort of, you know, why they, why they fail. You know, I would, I always say, if you're going to develop a golf course, start with 18 holes in a shipping container right? And then and then just open your ears up and start listening to your customers because they'll tell you what they want and then build it for them. You know, spend time, you asked about living here, spend a lot of time and it, it's, it's a time suck because you have to do your day job, but then your listening job, talking to customers and hearing what resonates, what they like, what they've experienced elsewhere, which might be appropriate to synthesize into our develop development here. So, all those things we learned from my dad leads to measure fifty times, cut once, and don't go too fast. You know, and don't try to get to the end game too quickly. You know, slow, patient. You know, if we built these developments with private equity, you know, they give us a chunk of money. It's burning a hole in our pocket. They need their returns. We're gonna fail. You know, it doesn't matter how how good at this we think we are. If that were my dad's model, he, he'd fail. Right, but he's he's slow, he studies, listens, he's patient, and I think that's a good way to do it. So for anybody who wants to build Bandon, start with 18 holes in the shipping container.
0: And then listen. <laughs> and then listen. Uh, that's that is some uh, sound advice. It's been cool to see that on the other side too as a, as a guest and a um, uh, coming up there since you know you guys opened preview play in 2016. I remember I, I became friendly with Glenn Mur- Murray. You guys' yeah. general manager at the time, yeah. uh, just from him stopping by, you know, the fire pit and, and striking up a, a conversation and then following up with, with details on questions. And I, yeah. I now I see, I see that how that unfolds and what you guys do.
1: Yeah. And hopefully our whole team does that in whatever sphere of influence uh, we have. Glenn, Glenn was amazing at that. And I think many, I don't know if we could get away with that for 10 years, but many people miss the early days when it was just, shipping container and you know, Glenn need work a million hours. And part of that included, you might flip your burgers and talk to you, get to know you, listen to you, learn from you, right? And then help us pivot. So not only are we listening, our whole team. Um, I think that's another important management style that you know we're, the three of us are idea, ideators. We create a lot of ideas, but all the great ones come from our customers and our employees. So we spend a lot of time listening to our team. Uh, because we each have two sets of ears, but we have 700 employees, right? And so they're listening. They're also coming up with their ideas. So to have a mechanism to funnel the best ideas, right. is super, super, super important part of, part of what we do. Yeah.
0: Um, so we'll kind of returning back to, to Sam Valley. I only have a few more questions for you, and then I'd like to run you through our new questionnaire we're going to do for all of our podcast guests. Um, but uh you know, golf course design. I think one thing that uh, is so evident about um, Mammoth Dunes that I, I enjoyed so much more the second or third time I played it versus the first, because you know I still play competitively and I like a good challenge. Uh, but my father's getting older, and and you know as he gets older, I've noticed that the courses we used to play together. Um, he doesn't enjoy as much. He'll tell me he's having a great time, but I, I can see it's like, man, he used to carry that bunker by you know, 15 yards. Now he's hitting short of it and, and uh, you know, playing a three wood up to the, the par four green and, and just um, not, not getting that excitement that he, that he used to and probably needs to move up a T, but that's, a, that's another story. And, um, but I, I've always admired um, how you guys build your golf courses for the player in mind. And uh, the architects you hire that, that obviously keep that as a core principle. Uh, you've, you specifically mentioned um, making courses more playable for women and, and older players as well. Uh, I've seen that in some, some other interviews you've done. What, does, what goes into making designs playable and accessible uh, specifically for those groups mm-hmm. and, and then for everyone?
1: Yeah. And, you know, I fall back on those descript, you know, gender and age, but the the best way to think of it is just swing speeds and and golfing abilities, right? Because we're all going to have, if we live long enough, a really low swing speed and we start off with that and, and maybe we start off with poor ability. And so, but there is certainly correlation with, with gender uh, and age part of it. uh, So let's just talk about swing speed. Low swing speed generate a different trajectory of the golf ball, right? So if my drive goes up high and then lands, lands down, well, let's take a seven iron, you know, if I were playing on a soft green, my, you know, my ball might go and, and stop and then here it releases 20, 25 feet. But the lower swing speed has uh, a much flatter arc and more of their distance is covered in, in roll. Right, uh, which is to me not a coincidence that so many more women uh, play golf in the United Kingdom because you can run your ball onto those greens, and a low swing speed golfer needs to run their ball into the green. If they land it on the green, it will roll off the back. So if you have a bunker right in front of it, you're basically saying you're not allowed to hit this ball on the green in regulation. That's not inclusive, right? Yeah. So you know our golf course is the goal is not the goals are multifaceted but you you don't see many bunkers guarding the front of the green which allows people with lower trajectories to land the ball short and and run it on you know so so that's one way the other thing is is tease. you know i mean my wife is you know she's a great athlete she's a new golfer but has a natural swing when she cracks it it goes 160 So one of the things I learned at Bandon when I caddied for women, they'd hit their, you know, they, they play a certain tee. They expected themselves to play. Uh, They hit driver. Then I'd had them the seven or five wood and they hit that three or four times and then get to the green. If that's how you and I play golf, we'd probably quit, right? Driver seven seven, seven, seven would wedge. So having uh, when you study swing speed and distance in, you know, 200, 80 yards for some golfers might be a par five. You know, at Glenway we're looking at the second hole, which is currently a par three, it's 200 yards on the scorecard. And as we're designing it, one of the questions I ask the group is, you know, what's the par on this? Because we're saying this is an inclusive golf course, but if for the core customer, the 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 senior woman, that's a par four, right? If she hits her drive 140, and the hole's 200 yards. That's that's not a part three that's at part four so let's design this golf hall as a par four but knowing that you and i are going to play the golf course we have to make it interesting for people who are going to go get there in one as well the sort of you can put the par aside is it a part three or part four but you have to design it recognizing that many of the golf golfers will take two shots to get there so um you know our our courses are all on windy sites, including Sand Valley. So the bunkering and the strategy uh, has to account for the wind coming from different directions at different speeds every, every day. So there's a a new set of things to contend with, but we offer tees at uh, you know, 3,400 yards I think is our most forward set of tees. Um, So I forget the second part of the question, but those are some of the ways that we you know, designed for for you know women and, and senior golfers or slower swing speed golfers. Forward forward tees and greens that are approachable from from the front.
0: That, that that's fast, fascinating to think about. Just um, uh, the swing speed element of that. And uh, right now, there's so much chatter in our group uh, around distance reports and and everything. It just popped in my head. Does that? you know, the USJ's distance report as a developer, is that something that you watch closely, you know, to think if there is, or is that just, does that not? not
1: No, because we don't build for those, for those, you know, for those people. Um,
0: That's what I thought.
1: You know, I mean, for the good of the game, I'm excited that they're thinking about rolling it back because, you know, more, more courses can, will, will be, um, worthy of a tournament and then they can play on better golf courses. Right. So that's exciting uh, to me. No, our golfers, um, I don't know that most of them capture the distance benefits of technology. And I should be careful saying that because I'm not an expert. I think, I think where it helps our golfers is on their misses. And I don't see a huge problem problem with that. You know, if you miss hit a, you know, I have a persimmon and if I hit it on the screws, it goes just as far and I can buy it, right. but it's harder to hit on the screws. And if I miss hit it, it's actually good for me. Cause I'm really wild. So if I miss hit it, I don't want it to go 300 yards because it goes 300 yards away from the target. I want it to go 180 and just be beside the fairway. I'm still in the hole. So yeah. I'm, I'm not smart enough to only play persimmons, but when I play with persimmons, I score better. Because I don't, because the driver is the worst club in my in my bag. Um,
0: That I can I can I can relate to this because um, every time we've been up to your guys' place, I I'll I'll rotate in and out my my gamer uh, clubs and then some persimmons. Uh, My my favorite being the the killer whale from the '80s that my my father handed down to me. And, and I'll play it. And and I remember one of our members being so insulted that I was playing a persimmon on sand Valley in in a match with him saying like, oh, you think you can beat me with persimmons? I said, no, I just score better. And I, yes, the answer is yes, but it's not to insult you. It's if, if I hit this well, I'll actually hit it further with the way that it rolls out up there versus, you know, kind of in the city area, we're not going to get as much roll. Uh, That's interesting to hear that.
1: And if you hit it poorly, you might still be on the fairway set.
0: Right, yeah. the dispersion's not going to be as penalizing. Yeah. Um oh, that's cool. Uh so one thing that uh my wife wanted me to ask you about which uh her and I are are very passionate um about conservation and we started to get get more into organizations that that help with that. Um San Valley's one of the place, few places that I've taken her and and she's she's taken note of that that you guys you know kind of have a refreshing awareness and concern for preservation and uh, conservancy, biodiversity, uh, things like that. So I I was uh, curious, you know, where does that passion come from for for you guys? Um, And what are, well, I'll I'll just start there. (laughs) Where does that passion come from?
1: It comes from my grandfather, my father's uh, dad, uh, Pap. He was an Eagle Scout and, and, uh, you know, an outdoorsman you know, he didn't follow his dream, which was to move to Oregon and uh, be a lumberjack. Uh, you know, he stayed in, uh, in central New York and, and, uh, you know, he was a dutiful son and that his, his father, you know, didn't see that future for him, but he had the passion for the outdoors and would take our extended family to the Adirondacks every summer where we'd you know, hike and canoe every day. So that was our passion for the outdoors, but also the ethic of leave the land better off than you found it, right? Don't just, you know, pick up cigarette butts when you find them. And uh, when I visited my grandfather, my dad, and Pap and I would go into the shed every day and pick our tools for the day and we'd go out, you know, we cut trails and plant trees and cut down trees. And that's what my dad and I did every weekend. It felt like every weekend, but many, many weekends of my childhood near the Dunes Club, as we'd spend the day, you know, out trying to improve, you know, the the woods around us with trails and and planting trees, removing trees, sort of sculpting, you know, the natural environment. So that's where it came from. At Sand Valley, uh, it was the Field Museum in Chicago who convinced us that if we restored the native habitat here from agricultural pine plantations, um, it would create an aesthetic beauty as is, is compelling as, you know, perhaps an ocean uh, because without an ocean, we had question whether or not it made sense to move inland. Every other course my dad had developed was on an ocean. Um, so our motives, you know, were partly altruistic early on, but it was really to create this beautiful view shed for our golfers to enjoy. As soon as we cut down the first red pines, And I remember being out here at now it's Sedge Valley, but two weeks after we cut, you know, the first trees, there's a cacophony of bird sounds, which I hadn't heard the first year on site in the monoculture of red pines. And then these flowers started, you know, sprouting up and I would get excited and take pictures and, you know, send them, send them to my dad my brother. And we all just became very excited about this reemergence of dormant seed that had laid you know, under the ground for 90 years, just waiting for light. Um, So we got excited about it. We decided to go well beyond the perimeters of that shed across our property. We're now at about 10,000 acres. Uh, Our goal is to build a national park. There's 2 million acres within the Central Sands region, um, which is a, a particular geological formation of this collection of sand. And, um, you know, we have, we have different models to get there and to get to the restoration. Um, my, my dad's um, spending a lot, more and more of his efforts in, in restoration and just made a very generous a gift to the Nature Conservancy. So we're working in partnership with the Nature Conservancy now to help, you know, rebuild as much as that of that 2 million acres as we can and to do it in partnership with them because they're such good stewards, you know, of, of the land. So it started, you know, way back and we've just gotten more and more excited about it as we've seen this habitat come back to life.
0: So it's so important. Uh, I'm a kid that grew up with a national park down the street from me in, in Ohio and uh, my wife as well. And so we, we know the importance of you know, getting kids in nature, getting families in nature. Yeah. Um, and not just golf, you know. And that's what that's what I always uh, impresses me about San Valley is you guys are adding on all these other things that people can do outside.
1: Yeah, and I'll tell you what I—I I mean, I love serving our golfing guests. I'm a passionate golfer, but to see families up here um, outside, no cell phones, laughing together—it doesn't get any better, you know, than that. You know, for me, we still have to focus on our core business, which allows all those other things to happen but it's, it's been amazingly satisfying to see families, you know, come here and have fun and come back. And, and, and that's, that's really neat and and new for us, but it's, it's been a lot of fun.
0: Any uh, part of that restoration are the plans for uh, pollinators, native pollinators to come on property. Um,
1: uh, So not the nectar plants, but the pollinators of them.
0: Yeah, right. Well, just the 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 whole project, like Project Pollinators, one that we watch um, from our group because we selected a bee, you know, as part of our logo, uh, yeah. which which is a metaphor for the full ecosystem, right? And yeah, so, so I like I, I like paying attention to those things.
1: Yeah. So we haven't brought them on, but they've come here, right? If you know that the if you build it, they will come. You know, if you build the habitat, the ecosystem will you know reemerge around that. So we we there's there's been a tremendous dormant uh, seeding of nectar plants. They blow in, birds bring them in, but we've we've planted a lot of nectar uh, plants. So you know, we, so we see a tremendous amount of bees, right? I mean, this is it's a, a source for them, so they so they come. Um, butterflies, monarchs, all over the place. Um, Blue butterfly butterflies, a federally protected butterfly. Their their nectar plant is uh, the lupin. And we've, we've planted hundreds of acres of that and we're seeing them, you know, all over. So there's certainly pollinators coming here in abundance. If you give them something to pollinate, they just find their way here. Um, so we haven't had to like bring in uh, beehives or introduce the species. They just, I don't know how they do it, but they, uh, the word gets out on the street that this is the place to, have some fun, and, and they, they make it over.
0: If, if anyone out there wants a rabbit hole, I've been on a, a one year just diving in on the the pollinators. You know, bees and butterflies, and how they operate is fascinating. Just and so critical to uh, humankind. You know, yeah. it's it's wild.
1: Yeah, our existence depends on, on them. So it's <laughs> big time. We better start, you know, respecting that and uh, doing something about it. Well, Michael, you've
0: been so uh, generous with your time this morning. I got one more thing for you. It's uh, something that um, we're kicking off this season on the bag drop and we're going to do for every guest. So I've adapted uh, 35 questions from Marcel Proust, who is the French novelist and one of the most influential authors of the 20th century. Uh, His questions attempted to reveal the truest nature of a person. Our questions. questions, John,
1: the guinea pig was about to get stumped by... uh... (laughs)
0: Okay. These are I'm short answer. These should be short answer, I think. But but our questions are, are attempting to reveal kind of the the soul of the golfer, if you will. Right. I'm calling it the 19th soul. 18 questions to reveal the soul of a golfer. Um, so, Michael, are you ready?
1: I guess so. As ready as I'll ever be. Let's do it.
0: When were you and your golf the happiest?
1: Last time I played.
0: What's the scariest golf shot?
1: 60-yard uh, bunker shot.
0: What is your go-to order at the halfway house? Water. Water. I thought you were going to see those little energy balls that you have at Craig's Porch.
1: No, I mean, honestly, I, I generally don't stop at the halfway house. I just like playing really quick. I play early in the morning. So just stay hydrated, maybe some coffee. Those energy balls are amazing, but... Well, thank you for plugging them. Yeah,
0: they, they're, they're, they're awesome. I, I, I've been trying to steal that recipe from, from the people that serve them up for a while. You don't
1: have so. to steal them. Just call and we'll pass it on.
0: Done. All right. Uh, number four, what is the trait you most deplore
1: in your golf game? Uh, stubbornness.
0: <laughs> what is the quality you most look for in a playing partner? Uh, integrity. What is the trait you most deplore in other
1: people's golf games? Stubbornness.
0: <laughs> what words or phrases do you most overuse on the golf course?
1: Maybe I say that's good too often. I'm pretty generous with putts. Again, I like playing quickly, so I'd probably say that's good a little too much.
0: That's what, that's what I look for in my playing partner, that they're generous. Uh, what golfing talent... Would you most want to have creativity? What is your most treasured golf possession?
1: Uh, I don't have it in my possession anymore, but I had a, a, a magical uh, seven Baffler seven wood, which it was really my only treasured possession. You know, I don't. I'm not really into gear, and I'm not sentimental, but it was magical, and I would rarely use it. But when I needed to conjure up a, a winning shot, uh, it would just, you know, whether it's a flap shot with a seven wood or, a, you know, a high fade or low hook, it, it would always do the work for me. And it, it left me. So I, I don't know where it is, but uh, that was my most, tre- my only treasured golf possession.
0: Uh, now we're making the turn on number 10. I like this question. What's the one thing in your golf bag you should throw out?
1: Um, my driver,
0: <laughs> so back to the persimmons, right?
1: Yeah, what is your favorite
0: occupation at the golf course?
1: My favorite uh, director of uh, outdoor happiness, uh, Bandon is a pretty, pretty neat. One, she was, she was pretty remarkable.
0: I, I, was, I was gonna that. say, is that the occupation or is that the person? I,
1: I like the responsibility and challenge with. Uh, being responsible for happiness. You know, that's it's uh so I like that I like that o- occupation. But I love my occupation. I think I'm extraordinarily lucky. So uh I, I stick where I am, but um uh, they're also important and, and different.
0: Have you ever asked another golfer for their autograph?
1: Um uh, once in my life I asked uh Michael Jordan uh, for his autograph. And that was, that was the only time it was,
0: uh, did you get it?
1: Yeah, I got it. It wasn't a a very satisfying moment. So I, (laughs) I moved on.
0: Every time I've ever asked anybody for their autograph, I've actually regretted it immediately when I've done it. I don't know why (laughs) it's just, you want it, but you, you didn't think about going through the process.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, what historical golf figure do you most relate to?
1: You know, not that I, I thought of Shiva Shiva's irons as, but I don't relate to him. I, I think I'm inspired inspired by him. I, I mean he's we're he, he so so different, but um, that's, a yeah, good, that's, that's, I, yeah. that's a good
0: one. That's all I can. That's a good one. what is your favorite hole in golf?
1: Oh uh, no, I'm gonna actually been thinking about this a lot and I, and I know I'm, I'm going to, um, the road hole, road hole at St. Andrews.
0: Very nice. Uh, do you have a least favorite hole in golf?
1: The, the long par three,
0: Long. So generally speaking, long par threes are unless it's really
1: long. I like a 280 yard par three, like a three plus. But you know, if I have a three iron in, in my hand and it's made particularly bad, if I have to cover a bunker to get to the green, then I press pause on the fun, you know, button and come back ten minutes later.
0: Uh, so we're getting down the home stretch. One song to listen to on the golf course for the rest of your life. What is it?
1: I don't listen to uh, music on the on the golf course. the 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 nature soundtrack of the birds uh, chirping.
0: Good answer. A lot of a lot of. I think that's going to be a popular answer for a lot of our folks. At-
1: and I whistle. I'm a whistler, so if somebody's whistling, I could tolerate that. But I'm not a big music fan on the course. Uh,
0: what is your greatest golf regret?
1: I, I can't say that I. I I have any regrets. I've seized a lot of great opportunities. And, um, I try to say yes to new experiences. So none, none come, come to mind, I guess, you know, I, I would say, you know, and it's tr- maybe true for all of life. You, when wisdom is shared, you know, I, I wish I could have absorbed that, you know, earlier and been more open, you know, it's such a generous community and, um, you know, when I was younger, people shared great insights and and being a stubborn person, it it took me longer than it should have to absorb them and to listen to them. So I I guess I I wish I was more open-minded at a a younger age to, you know, the the wisdom of the game and the people have been generous to me.
0: I think a lot of us can relate to that one too (laughs) as we get older. Uh, And final question, number 18, if you had a motto, Maybe you do, but if you had a motto, what would it be?
1: Seize the day it. it may be our last. <laughs> I like or, it, or leave the campsite better than you found it. one of those two
0: two good ones, two good ones to wrap us up. well, uh Michael, this was a pleasure man i I appreciate having you on the show and walking us through um all the different exciting things both at sand valley and beyond uh i think we're gonna have chris on later in the year because we're headed out to bandon for our winter meeting uh in december which we're also excited about but uh but yeah getting getting your take on a lot, on all the, the, the great projects you guys are involved in it has been fun
1: well we have a lot more coming so stay tuned and hopefully we could i'm glad chris is coming back and hopefully we could have another conversation as well
0: sounds great thanks
1: mike thanks for having me
0: Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. If you are not a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter or Instagram, we're at new club golf. This episode was produced by Mark Caldwell with research assistance by Jim Sitar. The backdrop is supported by members of new club golf society and our official partners. Golf Blueprint is the official partner of this year's spring meeting at Sweetens Cove. Started by fellow New Club members Kevin Moore and Nico Doris, Golf Blueprint creates research-driven improvement plans tailored to your game. If you are a member of New Club, you can sign up directly in the app for your exclusive Golf Blueprint membership. You will receive six Golf Blueprint practice plans delivered monthly at a 25% discount. If you are not a member of a New Club, head over to golfblueprint.com and start your improvement plan today.